welcome to the Passages Podcast. I'm Christy Cooney. My guest today is Mariam Namazi. She's an Iranian secularist, feminist and human rights activist. She left Iran in 1980 in the wake of the Iranian Revolution and since then has campaigned for human rights and, and the rights of refugees around the world. She's a writer and regular broadcaster here in the UK and hosts a weekly show called Bread and Roses, which is broadcast in the Middle East and North Africa, as well as on YouTube, and has been reviewed as immoral and corrupt by the Iranian regime. Mario Namazi, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now, the passage you've chosen is a poem called In This Dead End by Ahmad Shamlu. So I'll ask you to open the episode by reading it once through. They smell your breath. You better not have said I love you. They smell your heart. These are strange times, darling. And they flog love at the roadblock. We had better hide love in the closet. In this crooked dead end and twisting chill, they feed the fire with the kindling of song and poetry. Do not risk a thought. These are strange times, darling. He who knocks on the door at midnight has come to kill the light. We had better hide light in the closet. Those there are butchers stationed at the crossroads with bloody clubs and cleavers. These are strange times, darling. And they excise smiles from lips and songs from mouths. We had better hide joy in the closet. Canaries barbecued on a fire of lilies and jasmine. These are strange times, darling. Satan, drunk with victory, sits at our funeral feast. We had better hide God in the closet. Thanks so much. So tell us why you chose this poem. Oh, I, I love this poem so much. I, I love Shamlu, first of all. He's, uh, you know, a poet of protest, uh, you know, the, the voice of protest in Iran. And this, I think, s- explains so well what it feels like to live in a, in a society where totalitarianism takes hold and how you have to hide everything and uh, you can't even smile, uh, you can't even laugh in public, you can't love. I, I think it describes it so beautifully. When I read it, it just feels so real and exactly what happened to so many people living under an Islamic regime in Iran. So tell us a bit about um, Shamlu, for those of us who are not not Iranian and not familiar with the culture, about the place he holds in, in Iranian literature. Yeah, I mean, I think he, he is uh, the most famous Iranian poet, and he's, uh, he's someone who's, who's, who's challenged uh, and, uh, you know, all the taboos, basically, uh, religious taboos, uh, national tra- taboos, and uh, he never bowed down to the Iranian censors or the Iranian government. Uh, and that's why a lot of people see him uh, as, you know, Iran's poet and voice of protest, really. Mm. Um, and so I think if there's quite a lot of his poems have been translated into English. And honestly, so many of them are so beautiful. It, it would be well worth looking at his work if people haven't heard of him before. Mm. Um, so you left... Iran in 1980, when I think you were 14, is that something about 13, 13, 14, 13. Yeah. Um, And this poem was written in July of 79, so six months after mm. the revolution. Um, tell us a bit about why you had to leave and what about that time this poem kind of invokes for you and your memories of it. Yeah, I mean, this, uh, well, I, I think when I left originally, it was uh, to... Um, go to school outside of Iran because they had shut down uh, schools in order to Islamicize them. So the plan was just that I would be taken to school in India 
and left there and then um, my mom would return back home to Iran and I would come back when they opened the schools but things just changed so quickly and became so terrible that my father just told my mother not to come back and we stayed at a guest house there until he was able to join us with my three-year-old sister at the time so you know we were separate for I think more than six months or so until he was able to come out um, so it, it was kind of difficult because uh, we didn't really say goodbye to people. We we thought we were going back. So, um, you know, and I never saw a lot of my family anymore because I could never return to Iran. So I never saw my grandmother again. You know, when she died, I couldn't go to her funeral. Um, the same with uh, some of my aunts and uncles. And so it, it was quite traumatic because there are no goodbyes. But I think, anyway, that's the story of many refugees, isn't it? The, the fact that you can't say goodbye oftentimes. You have to leave. You leave everything behind. Um, and you have to start all over again. And I guess that's um, uh, what happened to my family as well. And we're, we weren't the only ones. And in a sense, we were luckier than most because we were able to all come out together eventually. Um, but, you know, the Iranian revolution was a really wonderful time in the sense that it was a revolution against the dictatorship. There was a lot of freedom initially, a lot of feeling of, you know, people could say what they want, uh, um, you know, speak up, not be afraid for the first time uh, after having lived under the Shah's dictatorship. But, you know, things changed quite rapidly when the Islamic movement took power. And uh, I think this poem describes exactly, uh, you know, what happened. You know, thousands upon thousands of people were executed. I think overall now in the past 30 years, um, 36, 7 years now, it's been over nearly 100,000 people who've been executed, uh, entire, um, you know, entire generation was wiped out. So it does describe that sort of uh, feeling of, uh, you know, you can't speak and they want to even smell your breath to see what you're thinking and what you're doing. And um, it gives the impression of how people were arrested and executed for having done nothing really, because it was all about creating this climate of fear and trying to frighten people into silence and submission. So give us a sense, if, if you would, about how that, how the the revolution, um, how that shift occurred, because it, it, it started out, wasn't it, in kind of imperfectly kind of legitimate dissent and people, there were pro-democracy movements and Marxist groups and secular groups and a whole load of groups going on and then it, and it could have turned out a different way. So give us a sense of how it ended up kind of morphing into what it eventually became. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it was, it was a left-leaning revolution and, uh, uh, it wasn't an Islamic revolution because if it was an Islamic revolution, the demand would have been for Sharia law and for the veil. And in fact, when the Iranian regime imposed compulsory veiling, there was a mass uh, demonstration against compulsory veiling in, in, that took place in, in Tehran, um, where actually even veiled women came to say that they're opposed to compulsory veiling. It was this huge movement. So it, it was obviously not something that came out of the revolution, but it was really the suppression of, of revolution and its demands. And I think if we look at um, the time that we're talking about, which was during the Cold War, uh, it was a time when um, even US foreign policy was geared towards creating a green belt around the Soviet Union at the time, 
an Islamic belt. They saw it as the best sort of challenge to the Soviet Union at the time. And so, um, you know, for example, it's it's a known fact that the U.S. supported uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, for example. And also, um, I mean, Iranians know this, but I'm not sure many people outside of Iran know this, that there was a meeting in Guadalupe where the powers, um, the, the main powers, including the United States, they decided that they would prefer an Islamic regime in Iran to a left-leaning one, you know, it was during the Cold War as well at the time. So uh, even someone like Khomeini that no one really knew about, he was really such a minute character in Iranian history, became, you know, the leader, supposed leader. And, And we see that today as well, where, you know, you've got fantastic revolutions taking place, what was called the Arab Spring, for example, and how suddenly, you know, all those dreams are squashed really and you've got you know the muslim brotherhood taking over in egypt definitely not what people wanted and and demanded there's this great cartoon of um people they're shouting there's like it's at a protest and they're shouting we want freedom we want bread we want um you know rights and then you've got the islamists standing on you know somewhere and shouting no bikinis because you know that's they've got this perverted view of sex and of women and men and you know and and that's that, that's what they're obsessed with it they're obsessed with controlling women and their bodies and it's so not what people's demands are when you look at them closely and that's how you can tell that it's really an expropriation of people's demands when when they come and completely destroy it and eliminate it really hmm. well, i mean th- there's a there's a nice coincidence that i came across last night when I was reading around this poem that one of the references to it on Google is you posting it without comment on your blog on the 12th of December 2011 which is six years ago today um, do, do you remember what made you post it then? Because that would have been in the midst of the Arab Springs I just wondered whether there was a particular event that, that prompted you to post it Yeah, I think it was uh, it's, it's you know, the sort of these well-meaning people including, I don't know, the director of Human Rights Watch uh, where they talk about how uh, the people want I- Islamic states and Islamism is a movement uh, that is the demand of the population and, you know you just have to live in a society where they're actually throwing acid in your face if you're not veiled or shooting schoolgirls for going to school to see that this is not something that people are demanding. Can you please shoot me so I don't go to school? You know, there is this huge conflict taking place. But so many, um, especially in the West, you see really good people, you know, which is what's shocking. I mean, I don't expect anything from the far right, you know, uh, I, I know what they represent and what they mean, but just well-meaning, decent people who who sort of defend the Islamist movement by saying that it's something that people want and demand without really looking at what people's real demands are and how much uh, conflict there is and how so much of what um, we see in societies like Iran or the Middle East or North Africa or South Asia have been imposed by sheer brute force and violence, you know. Um, but it's often portrayed as people's culture and that's their religion and that's what they want. And you're an Islamophobe if you say otherwise. Mm. Well, because I mean, you've been um, protested off campuses yourself um, and by people who are accusing you of... Um, of being an, an Islamophobe, or, or the various things. 
Um, do you think that that's a, a phase for the left at the moment, or is it the case that we're in 20 years, 30 years, the people running academic departments and media outlets and so on are going to be people that think that people like who criticise, say, the Iranian regime, whatever it might be, are dangerous and, and should be censored? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, we need to also define the term Islamophobia because I'm opposed to bigotry against Muslims, mm. I'm opposed to xenophobia, uh, but I think Islamophobia is really um, a term uh, that's used to silence criticism, uh, you know, because you you can criticize religion, you should be able to criticize religion in a way if you want any progress, especially for people's rights. Religion is usually one of the main things that need to be fought against and criticized and challenged, and also the religious right movement. So, um, you know, I think it's important to make that distinction and talk about that because oftentimes Islamophobia is immediately equated with bigotry. Um, but I think it's unfortunate that the left, and I say this as someone who's on the left myself, so I do really see it as a politics of betraying left principles, but also, you know, a, a lot of secular left activists who are on the front lines risking their lives um, in, in other countries especially, who aren't getting the support and solidarity that they deserve because this left seems to see any sort of criticism as Islamophobia and irrelevant. And I think it goes back to, you know, the world we live in today, a world which where identity politics rules supreme, really. So, you know, we moved away from the idea of universal rights, the idea that we we are common, we have common humanity that defines us and that we all, irrespective of our backgrounds and beliefs, are human beings. Uh, we feel pain, we, we want to live free, we want to have rights, irrespective of what our backgrounds are. Now it's, you know, based on your identity, that's the rights you want and deserve according to this sort of politics. And of course, who defines that identity are those in power and those who uh, gatekeep uh, on behalf of a so-called community or society. And so it's, it's dangerous in the sense that if you want to defend that identity, you're really defending those in power uh, in that community or society. And so anyone who dissents is seen to be dangerous. Uh, and that's the absurdity of it, isn't it? Because uh, you're actually standing with those who are oppressing and opposing those who are trying to rid themselves of that sort of oppression. Mm. So. Well, and one of the common themes that comes out of the same is true reading around the, the Iranian revolution, and it was true in the Arab Springs, that you get this sense that there were democratic secular forces there, um, but, and, you know, more kind of liberal-minded um, groups, but the, the common theme always seems to be that they didn't, they didn't quite organise and they weren't able to capitalise on a momentum that was overthrowing the outgoing regime. Mm. What do you think is missing there? Why is that a recurring theme? Um, is, it, is it purely a, a matter of, there are certain powers that are already more established and and that they tend to win out? Or is there something particular that, that these groups need to be doing before they're able to start winning positions of political influence? Well, I mean, I think there's, there's a couple of things. But of course, one is that uh, religion and the religious right are very organized. They're very well funded. They have state power. And so obviously, um, you know, they're already ahead of the game, aren't they? If you have secular forces in Egypt, for example, and you've got the Muslim Brotherhood, well, 
it's clear who's going to win. Uh, you know, and uh, it's interesting how wh whoever wins is always really part of the status quo and establishment in, in, in a different way. Really, there's so much similarity between the, like the Sisi dictatorship of Egypt and the Muslim Brotherhood. They're part of the same thing. You know, they want the same thing, really. And they're not really, the Muslim Brotherhood is not a dissenting voice in that sense, you know. So I think um, uh, it has a lot to do with money and power. Of course, uh, you can have lots of people organizing in the U.S., you get Trump. You might have a vast majority of people in Britain opposed to Brexit, but you get Brexit. And I think part of it is because we live in a capitalist system where, you know, money money matters, human welfare doesn't. And, um, you know, 1% of the population own more than, you know, half the world's, half the population's wealth and so on and so forth. So... I think those structures are real and it's really difficult to fight against it. And even when you have people, you know, winning against all odds, I mean, overthrowing a dictator, can you imagine how hard that is to do? You know, getting rid of the Shah with all that power, getting rid of, um, you know, um, I don't know, the dictators in Libya or wherever. What, what a hard task. But, you know, the, the cards are stacked up against you because I think... Um, you know, it's not about conspiracy theory, but I think it's very dangerous if governments allow for the fact that people can get rid of injustice and and change things for the better. What does that mean for Theresa May and for, you know, uh, Donald Trump? It's a very dangerous thing. And I think, in a sense, what we see, the catastrophe after the Arab Spring, is um, it's trying to teach people the lesson that you try to stand up for your rights and it's going to be even worse than what you had before. You should have been grateful for Assad, you know. You should have been grateful for the Shah. Uh, and it is, it, it is a fight, isn't it? And obviously... Um, they've got a lot more power and money and and everything, the military and arms, and the law oftentimes is on their side. But um, there is a huge power in people's movements, and in a way you can uh, understand why. You can see that power because of how frightened those in power are of those coming out on the streets, you know. Mm. So I think uh, nothing is guaranteed, and we're going to lose much more than we win. But those wins... Uh, change the world so well it was it was amazing particularly after the egyptian revolution i remember seeing a lot of stuff um from even groups like the imf and the world bank saying that what's needed there is after the revolution had kind of settled um what's needed was the restoration of macroeconomic growth and political stability <laughs> now there are two things that egypt has plenty of mm. in the three four decades up mm. to the revolution and 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 not very much in the way of political rights and, and political freedoms and so on. So it's amazing how much that, like you were saying, that that is kind of a spring back to the yeah. status quo. Yeah. And, that's, and that's kind of, that's obviously what, ha what yeah. has happened there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I think, uh, but, but the thing is that I think people are so, I mean, I have a lot of faith in people and in the human spirit to um, not bow down. And I think despite all of this people still struggle for something better you know if you look at iran i mean gosh if you only know iranians every year say this is the last year of the iranian regime i mean it's just something 
it's you know when you say it now you laugh because <laughs> yeah. you know it's it's a bit ridiculous to keep saying it but it's so true there's so much resistance to the Iranian regime there is so much protest everything from you know the unveiling movement in Iran to this fight for um, ending gender segregation in stadiums to uh, women singing even though they're not allowed to political groups organizing even though they're banned and on and on someone like Ahmad Shamlu you know uh, saying these things um, uh, even though he he was censored and he was harassed and banned and, and so on and so forth so that resistance is always there and that's I think that's what makes life worth living in a way and that's what brings hope uh, even in the worst situations that there is this fight back and that's what angers me most about identity politics is that how sad for you that you cannot see this human resistance and all you see are the Islamists and the Iranian regime and you think you need to defend them, you need to defend the Islamic society at your university or, you know, amend or uh, the Sharia court or, you know, that uh, regressive uh, imam who wants gender segregation in his uh, uh, speech. That's who you defend and you don't see you know, the women and the girls and the men and, and and people standing up and challenging things at such risk to their lives often and at such against all odds, you know. And I think it, it's, it makes a poorer world if you can't see that. Hmm. Well, in, every time there is a political change in, in Iran, but similarly in, in, in the Arab world as well, you tend to hear this line about, oh, this 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 new president is is some kind of is more liberally minded than the former one. It happened with Rouhani when he came in. It's happening in Saudi Arabia at the moment. Um, number one, why do you think that is, and is there is there a narrative that that serves? And and number two, to come back to what you were saying earlier, is there now at least some hope that that Iran can be wrested from the mullahs? Mm. I mean, it's interesting because again, it goes back to this identity politics. Um, seeing a homogenized community. And those in power are seen to be the authentic representatives of that community. So if anything good happens, again, you give credit to those who are actually oppressing people. You know, and it's just absolutely bizarre when you think about it. It's like giving credit to Botha or, um, I don't know, um, you know, for the anti-apartheid movement, you know, saying, oh, what? oh isn't, isn't he liberal that you've got, you know, a great anti-apartheid movement or in, in South Africa, for example, when there was apartheid. It's like crediting those in power who are trying to impose apartheid for the anti-apartheid movement. That's exactly what's happening now. It's crediting the regime for the protests in Iran. I mean, how offensive is that, really, you know? Uh, it's And the other thing to realize is the very fact that... Um, they have to even bring a Khatimi and a Rohani and say we've got reformers is because of that pressure underneath that's forcing uh, even Khamenei because let's not forget that even someone who's considered a so-called reformer has to have the permission of the supreme spiritual leader Khamenei in order to even run as uh, president. They have to be approved by the guardian councils. It has to be someone who has shown their allegiance to the Islamic regime. All of these so-called reformers have had their hands up to here in blood, you know. They've been involved in uh, directives, for example, uh, of compulsory veiling. All of these reformers, so-called reformers, have in attacking students during the student protests, throwing them off balconies, 
So they've all been involved in a lot of these things and they're part and parcel of the regime. Um, so, you know, what a what a thing to credit them for, the, you know, people going out on the streets, demanding a change, demanding an end to these rules. Uh, it, it, again, this is what I was saying, that the tra travesty and tragedy of it, that you don't see all that dissent and you're crediting, you know, a bunch of reactionary misogynists uh, and and that's putting it nicely, mm. you know, um, and 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 that's why we see less solidarity than than we used to in the past. You know, it used to be a great thing to show solidarity with the anti-apartheid movement, but now you're standing with those who are imposing gender segregation or gender apartheid rather than those fighting against it. You know, because they're the Islamophobes suddenly. Yeah. You know, on balance, then I given given that there are those victories being won. Are you hopeful about the young population coming up through Iran now? I mean, I don't know the, the, the exact figure, but it's it's a it's a huge population under thirty in Iran, isn't it? And, yeah. Um, so, are you hopeful that you know in ten, twenty years that you know cracks are going to well, start growing? I, I definitely. I mean, I think seventy percent of the population in Iran are under thirty, and none of them have seventy percent of the population have never known anything other than an Islamic regime, but they are the biggest challenge to this regime. I mean, the regime is constantly talking about how they haven't been able to Islamicize the young yet, how they're so concerned about secularism and atheism taking over, uh, you know, the, the universities and here and there. And in Egypt, you've got, you know, the Ministry of Religious Directorate working with uh, universities to try to stop atheism. You've got the Saudi government talking about how atheism is equivalent to terrorism you know, they're responding to something. They're not just, you know, responding. If there wasn't a problem, they wouldn't even mention it. And I think this is something that's very clear. There is a tsunami of atheism, of free thought, uh, you know, of uh, fight for women's liberation. You know, the fight for women's liberation is taking place in the Middle East uh, today. You know, if you look at a place like Kobani, if you look at a place like Rojava, I mean, in Rojava, the Kurdish fighters have banned Sharia courts. They ban polygamy. They've banned forced marriage. They haven't done that in the US, UK or in the US. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it is the center of uh, free thought and and women's liberation. But because you know, it's seen to be people's culture and religion, what the Islamists are doing, people can't see it. And I think it's to the benefit. Uh, of the Islamists, for sure, that people don't see it. It's to the benefit of a lot of governments, I think, not for people not to see it, because seeing that resistance brings hope and makes people think that they can change their situation for their better. So that's why, even though, you know, it's so widespread, we, we don't hear enough about it. Everybody knows bin Laden, but do they know the names of people who are languishing in prison? Well, Raif Badawi is one that we know, but that's thanks to his wife, who's managed to escape the country and, you know, is is uh, raising his case day and night. But so many like him that we don't know of, of, you know. And I think if anything is, if we can start seeing that and showing solidarity with those movements, the world would be a much better place, very much quicker than it's taking, you know. Mm. So, I mean, are you? what's your sense about the state of liberalism around the world? Because quite aside from Brexit and Trump, there, it does feel like there's a kind of, the world is currently in a sort of swing towards 
reactionism, nationalism of one form or another in Turkey, in India, in China. Do you think that's a, a blip? How long is it going to take to get past it? And, you know, is it, is it the case that in 20, 30 years, the kind of march of liberalism that in some ways defined a lot of the 20th century is going to kind of carry on? Well, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't necessarily call it liberalism because, I mean, I think a lot of neoliberal policies are are, are helping uh, exacerbate the situation as well. But you, you mean progressive ideas? I mean, ideals, political yeah. liberalism, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I think, uh, again, I think, um, you know, there's no guarantees. You know, things could get a lot worse. Um, things could get better. It depends on how we each take part in what's happening so obviously we are living at a time when there's the rise of the religious right and you know we've always said that Islamism is um, a far-right movement so it's no surprise that you would see the whole world being pulled towards you know the right to that extreme right in a sense so, you know, UKIP is irrelevant in Britain now because Theresa May has become the new UKIP. Do you know what I mean? It's It does pull everything uh, to that uh, way, especially because also if you look at even just Britain and how the rise of Islamism has been useful to the ruling class in this country because uh, separate courts for separate people, you know, Sharia courts, for example, it helps in privatizing the law, it helps in denying people citizenship rights, managing people on the cheap, really. You see this privatization throughout education, for example, the, the, the rise of Islamic schools, religious schools in general, and how you've got, you know, um, different sets of education for different types of children, depending on their supposed beliefs, you know, or their parents' beliefs, at least. So I think um, we are seeing that. But on the other hand, we're also seeing a resurgence of left and progressive politics as well. And, uh, you know, the one the 99% movement, for example, um, as well as just a lot of, you know, everything from the unveiling movement in Iran to the, the fight against Sharia courts, for example, here in Britain, internationally as well. There's so many examples uh, against the veil, against gender segregation, for, for labor rights, for example. In Iran, you know, the right to strike is illegal. It's considered haram, religiously unprescribed. Ce- celebrating May 1st, International Workers' Day, is considered a crime. There are people in long-term prison sentences because of celebrating and organizing around May Day, which is what's ironic when the left supports you know, the r- Islamic regime in Iran. So I think, for me, I look at it as a fight, and I think this is a fight that's been ongoing throughout history, um, and one that... Um, there, there are no guarantees, you know, otherwise we could just put up our feet and say, well, we'll just wait for 30 years to come and hopefully things will be better. It does depend how we each play a part in it. And that's why I think um, identity politics is so dangerous because it doesn't allow us to uh, play a part because we feel, it makes people feel that, well, that's their culture, that's their religion, we need to leave them to it. And um, not realizing that we can show solidarity with people that despite where we're born and what our backgrounds are and what our beliefs are even what our politics are we're human beings um, first and foremost 
and we need to support and help each other, you know. And I think um, if that carries on, it's just more difficult in the sense of people feeling alone, you know. Lots of activists um, who are taking great risks do often feel that they're not getting the support that they deserve. How worried are you about the prospect of a um, of Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister? Because he's part of that left that I think probably certainly is sincere in his support for trade unions here, but then will appear on Iranian state television and, and, and Russia Today and so on. Do you, th- do you think that that side of his politics is likely to be instrumental if he makes it into Downing Street? Yeah, I mean, of course, I hate his Islamist politics, but I also... Um, you know, I, I think we need to save the NHS. I, I think we need to uh, stop the privatization, the cuts on legal aid, all of that, you know. And I think we do need left politics in this country. We need left politics everywhere because people need not just political rights, they need economic rights as well. They need social rights. They need equality and social justice. And I think that's why people veer towards the left because they need that. They deserve that. And so I wouldn't vote for. Corbyn, I, I, I frankly have very little faith in the in democracies um, as they are because I think democracies um, are a facade. They they feign to um, be for the people, by the people, yada yada yada. But actually, they're the the government of a ruling elite. Uh, it it's just like an Islamic theocracy. It gives the impression that it represents Muslims, uh, but it's for people in power. And I think a lot of de- democracy today is is um, the rule of one class, really, um, and one set of politics that really doesn't put human welfare anywhere on the map unless you demand it, unless you fight for it. And we see that, you know, every day. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I don't have faith in it, but I think, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, for a lot of people, is a response to... Theresa May's really far-right politics in many ways. You know, it's becoming so far-right. But but I wouldn't vote for either of them. No. Yeah, so... Do you talk but, but again, I, I don't want to seem apathetic because I think a lot of times people feel that um, if you don't vote, you're not involved, you're being apathetic. Mm. I think, actually, politics is played out on the streets. And um, in that sense, I think people aren't apathetic. I think the reason so few people vote is exactly because they've realized what these sorts of politics actually mean for their lives. It means very little because they'll make a million promises, but nothing ever seems to come to fruition when they get into power. Uh, one thing I quite like about your work, you mentioned it quite quite a bit um, throughout, is, is that as well as kind of criticizing sections of the left that you think fall short, you also go after the far right in a, in a way that a lot of people don't. Do you think that... Do you think that some of your allies in criticizing those sections of the left are sometimes complacent when it comes to making sure that the far right is also kept in check? Because um, there, there are a few of these, you and Nick Cohen and a few others who, who make a point of doing both. But do you think that there are, there are sections of, um, of your allies in criticizing Islam that are complacent? Oh, 100%. I mean, I think, uh, you know, sometimes when I listen to people talk about the so-called regressive left, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, but it's 
it's the right that has killed people. I mean, the Islamist movement is a right-wing movement. A lot of right-wing governments are defending the Islamists. You know, the British government has very good links with the Saudi regime. They're giving them arms. They're funding them. They're training them. They're involved in torturing people, for goodness sakes, you know. And suddenly it's this, you know, this regressive leftist at the university that is the cause of all evil. It's, it's, it's a bit absurd, I think. And I think it's actually... Um, something that the far right pushes as well. It, it, it's not that you're far right when you do it, but it is accepting the sort of far right uh, narrative that, you know, looks down upon any left organizing as you know something that is automatically defending the Islamists and you know the left are responsible for people being killed in, um, you know, in Iran and elsewhere. And of course, that's not the case, you know. Uh, only those who actually do the killing are responsible for the murder and they need to be held accountable. Uh, of course, you can criticize people's politics, but I think if anyone's actually had a hand in propping up the Islamists, I think the US government governments would be the first to look at, not some left group at a university. I mean, that's not to say that they shouldn't be criticized. Of course, they should. Um, but I think um, it, it, it's often not you know, very balanced, this criticism. And also, I think um, this sort of, this group also doesn't, falls, does the same thing that that left does without realizing it. That left that defends the Islamists sees a homogeneous, a homogeneous community or society and therefore thinks that if they defend the Islamic society, they're defending Muslims. Mm -hmm. But this group also sort of sees a homogenous community, and they think that all Muslims or all migrants, uh, you know, um, have a different culture, and it's only those that have um, a Western culture they should be allowed in Britain, for example, or, um, you know, a Muslim has to first say that they're against... Um, Islamism before we can even talk to them. Well, how many of you first say that you're opposed to the EDL before we talk to you? You know, you don't make a habit of doing it because you're people with complex opinions and you're not reduced to one thing, your relationship with the far right in your country or society. Um, but Muslims are often reduced in that way. So it is, it is um, tough, I think, um, to... Um, have these conversations because for a lot of people they think well you know the main enemy are the Islamists and we shouldn't be arguing with anyone who agrees with us and you know the far right says some very good things about Islam well Islamists say some very good things about US militarism and the amount of people it kills but I'm not going to start defending Islamists because you know everyone even Donald Trump I, I, I haven't seen it yet but I'm sure he'll say one good thing in his entire presidency. You know, I'm sure he'll say one thing that you might, as a sane person, agree with, but that doesn't mean you would support Donald Trump. You have to look at things in a, a much broader way and look at what movements, not just what they say some of the time, but what they say all the time, what they do all the time, how their policies and politics impacts on people's lives. The far right, I mean, are... Um, not only dehumanizing the so-called other, but they are whipping up violence against them, inciting hatred against them. A lot of minorities don't feel safe because of that politics. You know, so it's not just about, oh, they've said something good about Islam. Well, what about what Tommy Robinson has said about migrants, about Muslims? 
I mean, do you not care? I mean, I'm in this fight because I care about people's rights and because I care about, uh, you know, uh, our, our, our collective freedoms, not just freedom for people who are white or people who are Western, you know, and I think if you can't see that, then you're in this fight for the wrong reasons and I don't see you as an ally. And I think that would be a great note on which to close. So I'll ask you to um, close the episode by reading once more In This Dead End by Ahmad Shamlu. They smell your breath. You better not have said, I love you. They smell your heart. These are strange times, darling. And they flog love at the roadblock. We had better hide love in the closet. In this crooked dead end and twisting chill, they feed the fire with the kindling of song and poetry. Do not risk a thought. These are strange times, darling. He who knocks on the door at midnight has come to kill the light. We had better hide light in the closet. Those there are butchers stationed at the crossroads with bloody clubs and cleavers. These are strange times, darling and they excise smiles from lips and songs from mouths. We had better hide joy in the closet. Canaries barbecued on the fire of lilies and jasmine. These are strange times, darling. Satan drunk with victory sits at our funeral feast. We had better hide God in the closet. Mara Nawazi, it's been a joy. Thanks so much for coming on the Pastors Podcast. Thank you for having me.